Well, happy Father's Day to you men, first of all. You know, in prior years, many years ago now, at Mother's Day, we used to pass out a flower to the ladies, and the guys got a bookmark or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have anything today. Um, Got to be too many of you, I guess, but we're going to give you something more valuable and the treasure of God's Word, and just as a bonus, a little more full a treasure in God's word this morning. So that's another way of saying I've got a long sermon. Um, <laughs> I'm going to begin in Ephesians chapter 5, so if you would join me there. I want to move through my notes as quickly as humanly possible. Um, and you can follow along in your note sheets as well. But we want to start our time in Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning in verse 22, and these words are so familiar to us in regard to marriage. There will be a focus on marriage this morning. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Father, we take before us the glory of your written word as the truth that we are to live by. We also take that your spirit has been granted to every believer that we might understand and be empowered, enabled to walk by the truth of this word. So I pray that you will grant us a special grace this morning to have the discernment necessary, the understanding necessary to know your word and that we might have that unique enablement by your spirit to walk in the word. Father, we confess to you that we need transformation. We need healing. We need restoration. We have forgiveness in your son, Jesus Christ but we need of you that we grow in Christ, that we look more like him, that we follow his example, and we listen and we heed to his word. I pray that this morning for us in Christ. Amen. I saw uh, just a couple of weeks ago a news clip on a what I believe is a, must be a late-night talk show. And the guest on this talk show, and all I saw was a picture of it. I didn't watch the show itself. But the picture of it had this uh, guest that was being interviewed by the host. And this guest was a fairly masculine, manly-looking character with, you know, all of the pecs and the 
biceps and stuff, and, and you'll know why in just a moment. But um, a very manly-looking fellow, but he was there wearing a woman's evening gown, a dress. And it wasn't a joke, and this was no Scottish kilt either. This was a woman's dress. And the theme in this article was that wearing dresses is no longer considered feminine, but men and women alike can be very comfortable wearing an evening gown, I guess. And I guess this is just indicative of the culture that we are in today. And you and I both know that the confusion in regard to sexual identity goes much, much deeper than that, doesn't it? And the reality is that our children are growing up in this sea of confusion. So is it any wonder that our young people are grappling with these issues of sexual identity? And while there is confusion in our culture, the true believer knows that Scripture is the authoritative source of masculinity and femininity. We must let our Creator define who we are and how we are to live. And we can say that because the Scripture teaches us everything we need to know for life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1. So we need not look to the culture, men, to describe what it means to be masculine or to Hollywood or to the entertainment industry or even the NFL. And we certainly don't need government to direct us in these matters. Right now, government is making laws to force us in to their sea of confusion. God's word is sufficient for true masculinity and femininity. And as was true of our Mother's Day passage, so this morning's passage on Father's Day, our forefathers this morning, will not seem all that fatherly initially. But I think as we move into our study this morning, it should become very, very obvious to us what our calling as men should be, and in particular, what our calling as fathers Today's passage causes me to see my own deficiencies, and I want to say that first and foremost, otherwise I could be standing before you as a hypocrite telling you what you should be doing with the assumption that I'm doing them also, and I'm not. I come under conviction even in the study of this passage, seeing that I have failed in many of these areas as well, so I'm not preaching at you. I am speaking to all of us this morning only with the authority of God's word that we need to heed the scriptures that is before us. When it comes to the Christian family, the church should be collectively involved in the support of what God has directed for the family and for marriage. Fatherhood is not just a subject for married men with children. Every one of us should be here for this. Whether we're pre-marriage, pre-having children, whether we're older and we're not having children at all, or we're not married or we're widowed, it doesn't matter. One thing that the church needs to be, it needs to be united on this subject of family and marriage and sexual identity. Because out there, there is nothing but confusion. We need to understand what this is about and the importance of it, not only to our children, but to us as a church community and to the society that is around us. If you look at Titus chapter 2, it's telling the older generation, you be involved in marriages and family with the younger generation. Help them out. Teach them, disciple them. Proverbs instructs the children, listen to the wisdom of your parents. Parents are receiving instruction from pastoral examples and the ministries of the church leaders. 
We're all called to pray for one another. We're all called to biblical instruction. We're called to exhortation, to support each other, to hold each other accountable. In other words, the whole church should be concerned with and devoted to the raising of children as the next generation of gospel-minded citizen and churchmen. So I want you to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 3, where we were last month for Mother's Day, and I'm going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 21, and I want you to observe there at the end of chapter 2 that Christ himself is our example. Christ is the example. Chapter 2, verse 21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he offered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin, And live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Chapter 3. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Now our text for this morning. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. The context of the first six verses of chapter 3, as we saw last month, pictures a believing wife that is married to an unbelieving husband, and she has the privilege of representing Jesus Christ by her conduct within her home. In other words, back to chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, she's following the example of Christ. She's showing Christ the way she lives within her own home as a testimony to her unsaved husband. As we looked at that study last month, 1 Timothy chapter 2 shows the critical evangelistic role that a woman has been given by the Lord in the raising of her children and the next generation. She has a profound influence on society in how she represents Christ within the home. And the point here is that Christ must properly be represented in our homes. Now, contrasting those first six verses, verse 7 now shows a believing husband and his conduct before his wife. Yet we're not told here by Peter if that wife is an unbeliever or a believer. He writes, you husbands, in the same way. And this may suggest that Peter could be flipping the verses a little bit, taking what was written in verses 1 to 6, and now flipping it over and say, now let's talk about a believing husband who is ministering to an unbelieving wife. 
That's what may be suggested here. However, that would make Peter's description of the wife in this verse somewhat awkward. A fellow heir of the grace of life. We'll be back to that in a little bit. But with this in mind, Peter could also be showing us, if we contrast that perspective, he could be showing us a Christian marriage where you have both a husband and a wife that are believers in contrast to a mixed marriage in verses 1 to 6. And from this point, husbands acting in the same way is a reference to a husband's gospel influence as it is true with a wife who's a believer and her gospel influence in the first six verses. And the point here is that no matter if this marriage is mixed or it is consistently Christian or not, the testimony of Christ must be the same. What should be obvious to us, I think, in this passage is that the verse that we're going to look at this morning, as well as the previous six verses, offer no discussion on children. So why talk about this on Father's Day? What's significant here about this passage in regard to parenting? And in answer to this, we must say that any given passage rests on the greater context, the greater balance of Scripture, the whole of God's Word. Peter is only one addressing one aspect of the family here, but we look to other passages to give us a broader view of the family. And therefore, we rest our understanding on family, on the whole of Scripture, taking 1 Peter 3 into account. And if you're putting in words in the blanks on note sheet, if you're following along in your note sheet, a critical principle of marriage that we learned from Ephesians 5, as I just read, is that marriage must be a priority in the family. The marriage union must be a priority in the family, and this is going to lead us into our discussion this morning. And I say that because very often Christian families can be very child-centric. Everything revolves around the children. Please observe from God's word. The marriage union is the one flesh relationship. You don't have a one flesh relationship with your children, but you do with your spouse. The joining of husband and wife in a one flesh mystery is meant to portray Christ's bond with his church, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, and the church's devotion, obedience, and love for the Savior. If we neglect this priority, neglecting the marriage in the family, If we neglect that priority, then a corrupt gospel picture will be given before your children and before the world. So if we're going to talk about parenting this morning, we're going to back up and we're going to begin with the priority, the marriage, because that is your gospel witness. They see you in a good marriage, your children will see Christ and his love for his church. What a man is to his wife he will be to his children. The man who thinks he's a wonderful father but who treats his wife dishonorably is deceived and he himself is crippled. In fact, I'd go further to say he is a crippling influence. If you give a corrupt picture of Christ and the church, you're giving a distorted gospel to your children. So, men, you better get your marriages right. We need to pay attention to what Christ is telling us here about the church and his love for it. As Peter writes, a truly effective gospel-proclaiming man 
must be a husband that bears the image of Christ towards his wife. And I propose that this view of masculinity is the foundation that God requires for a man's administration at home that will include the parenting of his children. Again, character not only matters, character is essential here. And Peter highlights three essentials in this text. Husbands, and again, you have a one-flesh relationship with your wife. You don't have that with your children. And therefore, number one, a godly, Christ-proclaiming husband must be a man who understands, a man of understanding. This is where Peter begins in verse 7. He refers to the wife here as someone weaker, note, because she is a woman. This is to draw our attention to creation itself. God created men, and he created women, or women, plural. And he created them different and distinct. And since God's word nowhere suggests that a woman is inferior to a man, either spiritually, emotionally, or intellectually, the reference here must be to weakness in regard to physical strength. The weakness that Peter writes of is because she is a woman. And a key difference in the physical makeup between men and women is seen in their physical attributes. Now, of course, this is a generalization because there are very likely some women that could beat up on some men, physically speaking. So it's a generalization. What Peter seems to highlight here is more an emphasis, though, on femininity. She is weaker because what? She is a woman. God created her to be a woman. He created her different. A man is to understand that God made women to be more of a tender nature who will come alongside and be what a man is not. And together the man and woman are going to benefit from each other's strengths. They will minister to each other's weaknesses and they will depend on one another in regard to those respective weaknesses. And while physical strength may be the dominant quality in this passage in verse 7, part of the physical makeup of a woman is that she is a more gentle and tender constitution. And Peter alluded to that in the previous verses. That's precious in the sight of God, he said. And therefore, we know that's what God created in a woman. Now, without a doubt, sin can corrupt that tender disposition. In fact, three times Solomon warned men, You're better off living out in the desert than with what? A contentious woman. So sin can corrupt this picture, to be sure. But sin aside, God intentionally created a woman to be the more tender and gentle presence in the home, which is so needed and so beneficial in the raising of children and to the improvement of her husband. This is the first year that my father isn't with me. And it reminds me that when I was raised by my mom and dad, they were very distinct and different in their roles. My dad was a very strong leader. My mom was a very tender and loving person. So the five boys, us five boys, could take advantage of my mom. We could appeal to her tender side when we got in trouble. And we could diminish with my mother the punishment. We couldn't do that with dad. My mom happened to be a very loving and tender mother. She still is. And the point that Peter warns of here is that a man is not to take advantage of this. He is most certainly not to abuse it. 
And when we hear of a supposed Christian man who has physically tormented or mishandled his wife, when we hear of men who have oppressed their wives either emotionally or spiritually, we can be sure that such a man has violated the role that God has assigned to him. A man is to understand the unique design and character of his wife and live with her in a way that is appropriate to that understanding. Now, with this in mind, what are we to know about this understanding? Men, live with your wives in an understanding way. What should we know about this understanding? Well, first, this understanding is something we receive from the Word of God. We're talking about the truth of God's design. His design for marriage, his design for the home, the truth about human nature, and the effect that sin has upon that nature. If you happen to have an NIV this morning, it says live with them with consideration. That is not a good translation. You're not being asked just to be considerate of who they are. The actual Greek wording is live with them according to knowledge. In other words, how you behave and act is not just being considerate. Your life with your wife is being formed and restrained and governed by knowledge. And the knowledge that has to be in reference here is the knowledge of God's word, because our knowledge is faulty, is it not? Left to myself, my understanding of my wife would be corrupt. I need something other than that. I need to live with my wife in a way that is according to, to knowledge, according to design, according to God's intent, according to what God has ordained, with the understanding of what sin has done to God's creation. Now, to gain an understanding of our wives, we're obviously going to have to communicate with them. We're going to have to spend time with them. We want to learn of their history, their past, their likes, their dislikes. That's all good, that's all important, and it's healthy to put care and effort into learning about one another in marriage in these ways. But how we process that information in a way that responds properly to our wives will come to us from a biblical framework, a biblical perspective. We refer to a biblical worldview. This is a biblical wife view. We're going to look at our wives and their preferences, their likes, their dislikes, even their sinful conduct. It has to be understood through the grid of God's word. This is not simply about understanding a woman. This is about understanding God's design for men and women, his purpose for the home, the roles that he's given to each one. It's about what God has taught us in his word about Christian living, about right or wrong, truth or deception, men and women. What is feminine? What's masculine? Marriage, family, Christian character. And I stress this because a man is not free to create his own understanding about his wife and then impose his values and determinations on her. This is where too many men have gone wrong. I think I know her, and therefore, according to my expectations, this is how I will respond. 1 Peter 3.7 is not giving us license for that kind of freedom. He is to look to the Lord God as the creator and his source of understanding his wife and how he is to live properly with this woman. Again, the original Greek word is important here. Live according to knowledge. And even as we observe and study the unique qualities of our wives, these have to be understood through the revelation of God's word. 
And I think this is where many men have gone astray and have abused the headship and leadership that God has laid upon them. Too often, as men, we have pulled out, I am the boss because God made me so hard. And we've imposed our own expectations based on our own understanding of what a wife should be and what a man should be. And I'm the boss, and therefore they are, what, the slave, the servant? Our society has gone that direction before, hasn't it? And sometimes this problem enters into the church. The Christian man is expected to look to the Lord God for the knowledge about life and godliness, including his marriage, including his children. It has to begin there, our source, the word of God. Second, where are we going to get this understanding? It's going to come from the word of God. It is also going to come to us from the exhortation that God speaks through the church itself. The church is our support. So in addition, a godly husband is going to refuse to live in isolation. He will recognize his need to hear the counsel of others, to accept advice, to be a teachable man. And this is important for all of us men to hear because men are very prone to be prideful and we presume we can do it ourselves. We don't need help. We don't like to receive help because it makes us look small and weak. As men, we can be very reluctant to take advice and we can resent it when it is given. There's that pride, isn't there? I want you to observe carefully from God's word what God sees as strength and masculinity. Proverbs 18, verse 1 and 2, gives us a caution here. Solomon writes, Proverbs 18, 1 and 2, He who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in what? Understanding. There's that word. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. And in this context, men very often are prone to be fools. I will be an island to myself. My dad used to accuse me of this when I was a boy because I wanted to do everything myself. I didn't want help. And I think this is an important word for any of us as men since we often think it is admirable to be self-sufficient, a self-made man, or a man that can do it all myself. God's word tells us the one thing we don't want to do by ourselves is our sanctification. Titus chapter 2 teaches us the older generation is to be a model and a source of counsel for the younger generation. And this will require us to be teachable. And to be teachable, we have to be what? Humble. It's not what we're normally known to be. Neither one of those things come naturally to us, being teachable and being humble. In fact, men will think this kind of need to be taught by others is a sign of weakness or a deficiency. But again, let's let the word of God inspire us as men in regard to true masculinity. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. These two verses are very familiar to us, but I want you to look at these two verses in the context of a man's strength. A man's strength. What's going to make a man strong, masculine? Well, listen to Paul's words to another young man named Timothy. You, therefore, my son, be what? Strong. In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Christian men can read this verse and think the strong, manly character in the church is going to be the faithful man that is teaching others also. We like to go right there to the end of the verse. Back up and read what Paul said to begin with. Here is a man that is writing to a younger man that has the responsibilities of a congregation in Ephesus. Young Timothy is pastoring the church there. Paul has the nerve to refer to this grown man as my son. It's like my little boy. Listen to me. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be strong in the grace in this context? Well, he goes on to say, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Paul is telling this young man, listen to me. I've been counseling. I'm directing you. I'm discipling you. Take the things that you're hearing from me and use them to help others also. And notice what it says in the middle of the verse there, in the presence of many witnesses. The whole church saw this. Timothy was a teachable man. He's their pastor. He's their head shepherd. I wonder sometimes, do you look at me as that kind of guy that's teachable? Do I in any way give the indication that I don't listen to others? I hope not. Because Paul is telling us that's what shows a man to be strong in the grace of Christ. He's not resting on his own strength or disciplines. The grace of Jesus Christ is being infused to this man who is being taught by another man. And the whole church saw it. Talk about humility. Everybody witnessed it. I think this is so critical that we see a man that is strong in this way. In this case, Pastor Timothy has been discipled by Paul. He's listening to others. He's done that in front of witnesses. The church has witnessed their own pastor, a man who's been instructed, corrected, discipled, nurtured to spiritual health and vitality by other men. And Paul says, keep that momentum going. Keep that chain of influence going. Teach others also, and those others will teach others. Pastor Timothy was not the original source of Christian wisdom. Nor had Timothy simply studied the word of truth himself and come to his own maturity. He had been trained by others, and the church sought. Here was a teachable man, a teachable spirit. A Christian husband will come to a true understanding of his wife's needs from the truth of God's word and through the discipling ministry of others, the ministry of the church. And third, this understanding, gleaned from Scripture, taught and exhorted through the church itself, will cause a godly man to proclaim Christ as he administers that understanding in his marriage. In other words, you're now going to practice that understanding. We're not just collecting information and data on our wives. I know a bunch of stuff about women now. Peter goes on to say, you lived that in an understanding way. There's to be a pattern now in your life where you are practicing that understanding. This is what discipleship is, is it not? We take from others, we take and receive from the word of God, and then we put those things into practice. And by practice, we mean that we are to make these things patterns 
of our lives, patterns of Christian living. And other believers in the body of Christ are going to encourage us to develop these patterns of godly living, not only by helping us to understand the truth of God, as we've already seen, but also by being examples to us and holding us accountable. We're going to learn from each other to consistently practice the things of Christ, as we establish patterns of godly behavior toward our wives, and we receive the blessing of God's gracious favor. Another example of this comes to us from Philippians chapter 4. So please go there with me, Philippians chapter 4. And in this text, Paul is encouraging a church that was very troubled by persecution and the hard times of living the Christian faith in a world that opposes. A lot of discouraged believers in the church. They were anxious, they were troubled, nervous, maybe fearful. So Paul instructs them, go to the Lord God in prayer with thankful hearts. And then he adds to that instruction in verse 8 and 9 of Philippians 4, a summary statement. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and anything worthy of praise, Dwell on these things. Oftentimes we look at that word dwell to say we should think about these things a lot. Think about them and you'll get better. But Paul does not stop there. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Do you realize now what that word dwell means? We're taking in the things that are true and pure and right. Our minds are saturated with these things. And then we what? We practice it. That's what it means to dwell in this territory of truth and purity and excellence. We take them in and we live in that realm. We dwell there. And notice again, Paul is saying, you've received this from me. You've learned it from me. You've heard it. You've seen it in my example. Now practice that. Live that way. And then, what? The God of peace will be with you. We're not just thinking about this stuff. We're not just thinking about good, true things about our wives. We must practice. We must live here. We must live with them in an understanding way. And this is how the church community encourages a man to be a faithful husband that cares for his wife as God has directed him to do. We look at the godly examples of other men, perhaps even the older generation, that they may be walking closely with Christ. We hear their instruction. We receive from them. We learn from the same men as we receive their counsel and their encouragement. And this kind of community approach to discipleship and growth will not only instruct men and show them the way, but it will hold us as men accountable to walk in the ways of the Lord in his truth with our wives. And this is what Paul was doing with the Philippians when he wrote, now put into practice the things you've learned. It's what Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 3. Live with them in an understanding way. Take that way. Live in that way. Dwell in that way. And you'll notice there's a parallel here. Paul says, and the God of peace will be with you. Peter says, God will listen to your prayers. This is the consistent pattern of Christian living. As we walk in the ways of God, we experience his oneness. The God of peace will be with us. It's another way of telling the church 
that God will be found where he's being heard and where he's being obeyed. God will bring his peace into the home of the man who is consistently living with his wife in a way where she's being biblically understood and treated. The Lord wants us to see these things his way, and he wants us to walk in that way. And this is where our marriages will experience the peace and blessing of the Lord in our homes. What God has provided for us in this is not only his word of truth, but also a church community that holds us all accountable, that teaches, counsels, lives before us in a way of truth, honor, righteousness, purity, excellence. So we have a man who understands. Second, a godly Christ-proclaiming husband must be a man who honors. Not only understand your wife and live in that understanding way, you must be a man who honors your wife. He continues here with a second essential character in a godly man. He honors his wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Honor is a word that speaks of value, dignity. It implies that which is precious. It has a price. It has worth. It is the same Greek word that Peter uses back in chapter 1 and verse 19 when he references the precious blood of Christ, unblemished and without spot. That word precious, blood of Christ, is what Peter is saying here in honoring our wives. We're to treat them with great honor and worth and dignity, as if they cost a great deal. Now, to be sure, neither men or women are as precious as the blood of Christ in that sense, but this shows us that Peter is calling men to highly value our wives. So what can be said of honoring our wives in this way? Well, first, we recognize it's a divine calling. It's a divine calling. If you look at chapter 2 and note verse 17, That word honor pops up before he even gets to wives. Honor all people, not just your wife. Honor all people. Honor the king, he says. Well, the king at that time was a crud ball. And all people, do they deserve honor? Are they worthy of honor? We would say no. So why are we to honor all people or a corrupt king? Or why are we to honor a wife that is less than honorable? It's because that's what we've been called to do by the one who is honorable. And therefore, what Peter is telling us, we honor our wives because first and foremost, we're honoring the Lord. He's called us into this. Honoring our wives is divine mandate. And therefore, we honor the Lord God to honor those who he has directed us to honor. Now, what if the wife is dishonorable? Do I reward her then? for her dishonorable conduct by giving to her honor? Well, we may have to address those issues that are dishonorable, but we had better do it in an honorable way because there is a mandate here. There is a calling that God has given to us as men to honor. Conversely, we dishonor the Lord when we mistreat our wives, when we speak harshly to them or belittle them or their contribution to the family. Wives are to be honored. Second, it's not only a calling, but we're being called to extend equal honor. Fellow heirs of the grace of life, it says. 
In other words, how I see myself is now how I must treat my wife. And this tells us that once that husbands are to be valuing their wives on the same level that they value themselves, the wife is not to be treated with less dignity in the home simply because the man has been given the leadership position or because she is physically weaker or because she's supposed to submit. Certainly that God has called wives to submit to their husbands is in no way suggesting she has lesser value. Equal honor is the theme here. And this is going to forbid the Christian man from demeaning his wife or treating her as if she is his personal slave or servant. And he may have a very high and lofty occupation. His job might put him in great positions of power and influence and people bow before his feet at work. But if his wife is just a homemaker, she is just a loftier role as he has. And she better be honored for it. She is to be held in as much distinction and prestige as her husband. They are one flesh, and therefore they labor together on equal terms, each holding a valued and precious calling in their marriage together. Honor your wife as a fellow heir. And third... This honor must be of heavenly quality. This is a third reality to the honor that men must give to their wives is that it is is the kind of honor that is consistent with our eternal inheritance. The way in which we treat our wives with value must be of the same quality, quality that we show to Christ since he is the one that has given to us that inheritance. We're fellow heirs to the grace of life here. Who is the one that has granted that? Christ. Therefore, give honor that is due that life that Christ has given. The language that Peter uses here is interesting. A husband to honor his wife as one who is a fellow heir with the husband in the grace of life. Now, there's some scholars that see that word life as a description of the temporal life that a married couple will have together. And if that is true, If that interpretation is accurate, then Peter may well be speaking here of a Christian man who is married to an unsaved woman. And without a doubt, the Lord God does show common grace to the saved and unsaved alike. But others see that word life as a description of the life to come, the life of glory that has been given to us in Christ Jesus. To be an heir in this sense would suggest that we have not yet received the eternal inheritance though we have possession of it. It is ours to hold on to, but we haven't cashed it in yet. We have ownership in heaven. We just haven't stepped into that glory of life eternal. And if that interpretation is correct, and I believe that it is, then our eternal life is something that we are experiencing right now. We have possession of it, though we have not realized the full glory of what is yet to come. But you understand the value of it, don't you? If you're a believer, you understand the value of that which you've inherited in Christ Jesus. Therefore, honor your wife as one who has been valued with that thing. That's what Peter is emphasizing here. The moment we come to faith, we've been made eternally alive. And this life can never be lost to us. It is our inheritance, it says in Ephesians chapter 1. Our bodies one day are going to give way to death. 
The spirit that belongs to Christ is going to continue to live forever. And when death comes, our spirit will be instantly transported to be with him in heaven. Therefore, right now, spiritually, I have been made alive and I'm going to continue living even when this body dies. The spirit doesn't die. And if this is the grace of life that Peter refers to, and both the husband and wife are heirs to this life, then both are believers in this context. And you'd better be honoring your wife with that kind of quality of respect. The grace of life beautifully expresses that this life has been granted as a gift of God's grace. And to be heirs together of the grace of life means that both husband and wife are in possession of the richest of gifts that we could possibly own. To honor our wives as heirs of this life should be of such quality that it properly reflects the inheritance that awaits us in glory. This is not suggesting that we honor our wives as we honor Christ, but it needs to be of the same quality. It needs to be a heavenly honor. It sets the standard very high for husbands and fathers here. How our children should see their dad showing their mom a heavenly quality of honor and dignity. A man should never be found throwing his wife words and attitudes that are not fit for heaven. A godly Christ-proclaiming husband must be a man who understands. He must be a man who honors. Finally, he must be a man who prays. Peter offers this consequence to dishonoring our wives. We're going to disrupt the fellowship that we have with our Father in heaven so that your prayers will not be hindered. What does that tell you about a godly man? He's a man of prayer. And this puts a priority on our relationship with Christ. You want to be a godly husband? Make Christ your priority. This is a man that so values his fellowship with Jesus Christ, he's not going to do anything to disrupt that. So Peter highlights here, you trash your wife, God is turning his ear away from you. He's not listening. Your prayers have been disrupted. There's a broken fellowship here. And what this part of verse 7 shows is that a Christian husband is meant to be a praying man. So pay attention to the way in which you honor your wife. But let's consider for a moment what a praying husband that honors his wife looks like. First of all, it emphasizes that the Lord Jesus Christ is this man's priority. He's a praying husband. And he honors his wife, so he does not disrupt that prayer life. The reason that he's to respect his wife is first and foremost because the Lord has required it of him. And he in no way wants to lose that fellowship or dishonor the Lord or disappoint the Lord. Peter does not tell the husband, respect your wife so that you have a really good marriage. Or respect your wife because it's the moral thing to do. Both of those are true. He's saying respect and honor your wife so that your fellowship with your heavenly father is not disrupted. That is your priority as a Christian man. A man is to show honor so that his communion with the heavenly father is not broken. Jesus Christ must have first place in my life, and therefore I don't want to do anything that's going to disrupt that fellowship. It shows the priority of Christ in our life. One author writes this, God does not bless with his favor those who are in positions of authority and abuse those who are under them by mistreating them. This is what Peter is summarizing here. God is not going to honor us as men if we're mistreating our wives. A man who keeps the Lord God as his priority will be very concerned 
about his communion with the Lord. And it will distress his soul immensely to think of the ear of the Lord being closed to his prayers. It is out of obedience to Christ that we treat our wives with great care and great respect. Second, humility is the posture here. The man who is not afraid to honor his wife because of his devotion to prayer and his fellowship with Christ is the man who is walking in humility before his family and in the presence of the Lord. And if you think about what prayer is, prayer is a humbling of ourself, is it not, before the throne of grace. We're pleading with God to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. The throne of grace is where we find mercy and help because we need mercy. We need help. We need to be men that recognize we need help and we need mercy. This is a quality or a posture of humility that men must adopt in their sanctification because it's something we struggle with. Occasionally, a man will be recognized as a humble man in the church And he stands out from the crowd. Isn't that sad? When we have a humble man, a truly humble man in our congregation, he stands out. It shouldn't be that way. We all should have that humble quality. It's something we struggle with. Because if men were proud, independent, a truly humble man is found before the Lord in prayer. And he's not afraid to honor his wife so that that prayer is not disrupted. It's pride that keeps us from showing honor. And third, in this prayer life, watchfulness is our position. Think of the man in the family that has his gaze over all the circumstances of his wife and children. He knows the landscape, the the people that his family are involved with. He knows what to pray for, in other words. He sees the danger, and he falls before the throne of grace. He said, protect my wife, protect my children. There's a dangerous thing here. They're struggling over here in their sanctification. They need help. Help me to be an influence to them. This is a man that prays because he's watching the circumstances of his family. And when prayer marks a husband and a father, it shows a very masculine quality of a man that's standing watch. He's attentive to the needs of the family, looking out for danger, evaluating the spiritual condition of each member of his household. These are things a praying husband will bring before the Lord in prayer, keeping close to the throne of mercy and help. It's very important to the man who honors his wife as a co-heir of the grace of life. It shows that he's devoted to guard his family, to see that his house is well supplied with God's mercies. And from this perspective, it's easy to see why devotion to prayer and caring for one's wife go hand in hand. The faithful husband in 1 Peter 3 understands his need to walk closely with the Lord, knowing that God is his greatest resource of protection for his wife, for his children. And the man who neglects or mistreats his wife only cares for himself. And this kind of man will not be heard by the Lord. But the husband who understands and honors his wife, he's never going to be content to minister to his wife without help. He's going to go to God. He's going to pray. A praying man's going to keep watchful over his household. Prayer is vital to our Christian marriages. And a husband who is committed to love and care for his wife will place the highest priority in his own fellowship with the Lord, doing nothing that's going to cause harm to this divine communion. 
He's a man that will humble himself to seek the Lord's help and mercy. He'll be watchful. He'll be attentive to the needs of his wife to seek the Lord's provision. This is a man of prayer. And this is what we need as men this morning. And I encourage myself as well as the rest of you with this passage. But to this point, the focus of our study in 1 Peter 3, 7 has been to the marriage relationship between a man and his wife. But what of the children since this is Father's Day? And I want to end with a fatherly application here. I hope you understand that when we're talking about family, the priority must be with the marriage. Let's apply that now to our children as fathers. First, this is a testimony to them. Your good, godly marriage, being a good, godly husband, is a testimony to your children. That's the word you should be filling in in that blank. If we would look at our marriages as that which gives testimony to Christ and his love for the church, Imagine how that will reform how you as a husband communicate with your wife and how you treat your wife, how you look at your own marriage. It's not just something where we've said yes at the altar and now she takes care of my needs and makes me happy. I should see my marriage with my wife as a proclamation of Jesus. How are my children seeing Jesus? How are they seeing the gospel? Well, they're looking at dad and how he treats mom. Do they see Christ there? Imagine how our marriages would be reformed and our children would be influenced for Christ if we actually valued our marriage one flesh relationship as a picture of Christ and his love for the church, the church's devotion and love for the Savior. Our marriages, first and foremost, have to be a picture of the gospel. That's our calling as men. And that's on you ladies too. But consider how much greater our marriages would be if that was our objective. Consider what kind of gospel influence this will have on our children in preaching the gospel to them. Don't just read them Bible stories. Don't just take them through the ABCs of the gospel. You need to show them Christ and how you treat your marriage. That's so critical in the family. Second, we need as men to live our marriages as a training to our children. We need to teach our children what a marriage should be, what it looks like. When they grow up, how are they going to perceive marriage? What are they going to know about marriage? A godly husband, you're training your son. This is how you treat women. This is how you're going to treat your wife. What are you training your daughters? This is the kind of man you look for. Don't settle. Don't settle for the man that will soil you and just take from you and abuse you. Men, we're teaching our daughters, don't settle for that kind of man. This is a training ground that we must take seriously. And it's on us men. If we're the leaders in the home, if we're the head of the home, if we're picturing Christ, We're training our sons and daughters. And third, as we look at marriage in this way, we must see marriage as transformative. Transformative. Transforming us from pleasing self to serving and pleasing others. 
marriages all too often end up being, what can they do for me? How can my wife, who's submitting to me, take care of my needs and make me happy and please me? Marriage should be transformative from men. We are naturally self-pleasers. We love to take care of self. We love others to take care of me. We want to be the important spectacle. We're very prone to see marriage as a mission given to our wives to serve our pleasures. However, if we do husbandry, as 1 Peter chapter 3, 7 instructs, we're going to learn first to live with your wife in an understanding way. You honor them. And if we learn to serve our wives, we're going to become faithful servants to the needs of our children. And if we serve our families... We're going to learn to serve the needs of our church community. And if we serve the needs of our church community faithfully and our wives and our children faithfully, we're going to serve the world around us faithfully as we share Christ with them. And from this, we can see how a biblical union with our wives and children will have the greatest impact on the world around us. A messed up Christian family does nothing but distort the gospel. So we better get this right if we're going to be true gospel evangelists. We've got to get our marriages right. We've got to get our families right. We've got to get our churches right. And we've got to reflect that righteousness of Christ to those around us. And this is how men live for the glory of Christ. It's how a man proclaims his greater devotion to Christ by portraying God's redeeming grace and love for his church. A husband serves Christ by serving his wife with understanding and with honor. And may God give us all the grace that is necessary to do that. Father in heaven, we have a divine mandate from you that our 